I'm Molly O'Connor. And I'm Sarah Connell. And you are listening to Pop It. This is the podcast for popping questions, popping bottles, and pop culture. Today on Pop It, we are hosted by the AC Hotel in Worcester and joined by our guests Claire Smith and Whitney Allen to discuss women in the science fields. Welcome. Welcome, ladies. Mm -hmm. Do you think you could both just introduce yourselves and tell us a little bit about what you do for work? Uh, I'm Whitney Allen. I'm a veterinarian practicing in a private clinic in Newton, Massachusetts. Uh, G'day, I'm Claire. Uh, I'm a medical researcher at UMass Medical School. You are you research like genomes, right? Yeah. So can you explain like what that means? <laughs> so I, I sure. Um, so you know we all it, it's this fascinating question. We all have this unique genetic makeup. What is it that makes you you? You know what is it that your genes are going to drive? In in, a, in my particular interest is in disease susceptibility. So why do we get sick? You know, what is it about our genomes that could be driving, you know, some people to be susceptible to things like cancer or diabetes? And then what's the interaction with the environment? So it's all our unique, special little genomes, our makeup. Um, and I'm interested in particularly infectious diseases. So these old school diseases that we thought, you know, we've cured the world of TB. It's not true. How right? many people have TB right now? So they estimate, you know, the, the numbers we sort of throw around are like one in three people worldwide are latently infected with TB. So I might wow. have it right now, but not exhibit any of the symptoms? Exactly. So it's, it's TB is, you know, um, so it's caused by this bacterium called mycobacterium tuberculosis. And you, you breathe it in, and then most of us, we lock it away in our lungs. We, we can survive just fine. But there are, you know, proportions of people that have really bad disease and can succumb to TB but most of us have the you know the good immune immune system to lock it away so you would never know that you have TB necessarily so so then those people who who are susceptible to it what is it about their genetic makeup exactly hey you could (laughs) that was like the one section of biology in high school that I was like I get this part (laughs) same and I mean I I was terrible at all other science I was not a good science student I hated science and math but the the question it's one of the only subjects where you're actually encouraged to say but why yeah I love that Whitney did you have a similar experience growing up did you always love science or was it a struggle for you uh, I did I always loved science and I always loved animals and I, I grew up in a, a very math and sciencey heavy family and home um, and I I was always very fascinated into it and very into science but similarly like there are parts of it that I am just not good at and for a while um, before vet school I actually was in equine biomechanics research which is like physics applied to biology and that's literally the only piece of physics that I am even remotely decent at Um, the kind that you have to do in class like to get into vet school I was horrible Um, so it's it's interesting and it makes me feel better to hear that I'm not the only one where there are parts of science that I just cannot do well it's interesting it's like in any discipline right like an artist who's a great sculptor might not be very good at drawing or something like that and I'm a stem teacher Molly's a math teacher but we're working so hard actively now with girls to encourage them to enter those fields uh, science technology engineering design math and I'm just curious when you were growing up what was the experience in terms of people supporting you in going into those fields 
Yeah, I think for, for me, having awesome teachers that do encourage you, even if you're rubbish at science like I was, you know, I just had a fantastic teacher who said, you, you know, I didn't really get the stuff on the paper, but as soon as you start to apply real-life examples, and I went to the medical research institute in my local town, my hometown in Tasmania, and I hung out with all these med researchers, and it didn't seem so daunting when you're actually in doing it. You know, once you can sort of get through all the basics, then you can do the really cool, fun stuff, um, the really interactive with people and, and you know, animals. Yeah, I had a similar experience. I had a few teachers who really early on, like when I was seven or eight, started to like pull me aside and let me do extra science projects. There were things that I really didn't enjoy, one of which was like public speaking and speech and social studies. But I And so they kind of let me divert more of my attention into math and science and really supported that, and my, my family did as well. So having that support of just being allowed to go into the parts of things that I really liked and was really good at was really, really helpful. Um, so you guys are the real heroes, you realize. <laughs> you guys play a bigger role, I think, than you think. Like, <laughs> Not all heroes wear capes. There you go. Exactly. So you both work in fields where you get to help creatures and people. Yes. Um, is that what drives you? Is it sort of the, the human part of it, of caring for other people and other creatures? Or is it more of um, a scientific motivation? Uh, it's it's kind of both, and it's it's always a funny joke because we, there's always a joke among veterinarians that we went into our field because we don't like people as much as animals. But the way that it really turns out is like it's a very people-oriented career. Um, so despite the fact that I grew up being someone who hated public speaking, I professionally talk to people all day. Like most of, I would say like 70 to 80 percent of my job on a daily basis is communicating with pet owners about how to care for their pets. And through that, I actually have a really strong passion for client education, community outreach, like improving care animals receive by educating the people caring for them. And I think it's, it's building that bond between people and their pets that really drives me. Like obviously I like to make animals feel better and I like to make people feel like they're doing a good job taking care of their pets, but it's most rewarding when I can see my patients do better because because their people are doing a better job because they have a better understanding of how to do that. And I think the, the same in, in med research. You've, you know, maybe we all things, you know, it all looks very technical, but in reality, it's 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 a lot of you know computer work, a lot of coding, um, a lot of yeah, a lot of getting out there and trying to explain what we do because there is absolutely no point to making all these breakthroughs in a lab. You know, unless we can actually get people excited, this this is taxpayer funded. You know, NIH, the government funds what we do. You all are actually driving medical research. You're all driving the the next generation of of, of uh, drugs and cures. So we need, yeah, we, we need to strike the balance. Yes, we want to help people. Yes, we want to chase a question. It's such a cool question. You know, why why do we get sick? How can we prevent it? And then how do we engage the community and the next gen? We, we can all sort of make a difference. We can all be part of it, I think. Comes and full circle in a way. And you both came to Worcester from other communities, Tasmania and Ohio. <laughs> Very exotic. Yes. Very exotic. <laughs> but we want to hear about your paths, not just to science, but also your paths to Worcester. Well, I, uh, I did my undergrad in Tasmania, Tasmania, Australia. It's this little island off the, the, the south uh, east coast of Australia. Uh, there are Tasmanian devils there. That's a, that's a real thing. It's not just on Looney Tunes. 
uh, I stayed and did my PhD in Tasmania. And it's this island, it's, it, Maine reminds me most of Tassie. You know, it's really beautiful, lots of forest and, and oceans, um, great, great small communities. So Hobart, the capital, is about the same size as Worcester. You know, very post-industrial. I, I'd finished my PhD, I'd, I'd travelled, I'd lived in Paris and Lisbon for a while, and then I saw this job ad for UMass Medical School, a guy called Chris Sassetti as a professor. And I, I had never been to the US. I had no idea where Worcester was. I applied and got the job and packed my bag. I had nowhere to live. I, um, I just got on a plane to New York. I figured New York wasn't far from Boston. I, uh, yeah. I showed up with my life's possessions in a bag, um, showed up in Boston, got in a cab, asked the cabbie to take me to Worcester. And first up, he was like, lady, it's Worcester. And second, get out of my cab and get on the commuter rail. Like, where the heck am I going? And as you get on the commuter rail and you come out to Worcester, it was overwhelming getting off the train with one bag thinking, shit, I have nowhere to live. What am I doing? Where am I even going? Like, it, it just seemed like such a great adventure. And it's all turned out for the best five years later. Um, oddly enough, not a very different story. Um, so I, I moved, as soon as I finished high school, I, I wanted to get out of Ohio. I wanted to live in different places. I wanted to experience different types of cities and people. Um, the village I grew up in has like four to 5,000 people. So it's a very small rural town and I was bored. I needed to see more things and go to bigger cities. And so I did my undergrad at Michigan State University in East Lansing, which is not by any means a large city, but it was huge compared to where I'd been. And then after that, I had this um, horrible year of panic where it was, I wasn't sure I wanted to go to vet school anymore. It was a huge financial commitment. It was going to be a huge time commitment. Um, and I thought there might be other things I could do to help animals and people. So I applied to a few different master's programs, and three of them were hard sciences, so continuing on in biomechanics like I had been, um, or other biomedical degrees. And then there was one program at Tufts Vet School in Grafton, so right next to Worcester, in animals and public policy. So it's a master's of science that focuses entirely on how people relate to animals and how that affects our laws and how we view animals as a society. And I picked that one, and I packed everything I owned into my car, and I moved to Massachusetts without ever having been to the state, um, into a house that I had never seen, to live with people I didn't know um, on Worcester Road. And um, it was a great adventure. Worcester was the biggest city I'd ever lived anywhere close to. And honestly, when I first got here, I couldn't find a grocery store because none of them are named the same thing. And then when I finally did find a stop and shop, I thought everyone there was from a foreign country because the accents here were so thick that I honestly didn't even recognize it as English for like four or five days. And I was, I moved in like a week before my roommate. So it took me a bit. I, by the time they got here, I just figured it out a little bit. Um, but it, it was, I at least had somewhere to live, but it was similar. Like I didn't know anyone out here. Um, and that was nine years ago now. Wow. wow. And Claire, we're going to lose you after five years. Hopefully we'll hang on to Whitney. But um, <laughs> can you tell us about what your next steps are? Yeah. So, so I came here to do what's called a, a postdoc. So it's your postdoctoral fellowship. And I've spent five years researching tuberculosis um, and new vaccines for TB, you know, why people get TB. Uh, at this wonderful lab, the Sassetti Lab at UMass Med School. And it's been a fantastic uh, training. I've loved living in Worcester. Um, I've loved going to UMass Med. But now it's time for me to fly the coop. 
So, so we do our five years of training and then you know, go out on the job market, which is this really scary, you know, all the postdocs in the US are sort of out trying to get, trying to get faculty positions. And through, I, I mean, Aussies, we call this um, sheer arse. It's a term where it's, you know, right place, right time, luck, just who knows what, what. but I managed to land a job at um, Duke uh, medical medical school, Duke University, uh, down in North Carolina, in Durham. And it's kind of my dream job, you know. Now I get to open my own lab, the Smith Lab, and we'll be studying uh, tuberculosis and malaria and what we can do to treat these these age-old diseases. And I'm, I'm thrilled. Now I, we get to, I get to recruit students and other postdocs, and the cycle continues. What will you miss about Worcester? Lots of things. I mean, it's been like, it reminds me so much of Hobart. Um, you know, it's a, the people that live here have lived here a long time and they have really good family connections. Family is so important. And it's, you know, people are kind of proud of Worcester. It's like, a, you know, it feels like a up and coming, you know, it's been nice to be a part of and see, see all these wonderful Worcester places. People are coming to Worcester. It's affordable so much more affordable than living in Boston. You know, imagine trying to do a postdoc. We don't get paid very much to do a postdoc. So Worcester made it really uh, accessible. I've made some great friends. You know, I'm, we, Sarah, we met, in, we met at Simjang a few weeks ago and it, that's just Worcester in my experience. You just start chatting to somebody and, and you sort of all become mates in a way. So I'll miss the mateship, the Worcester mateship. Well, at the risk of sounding taboo, I hope that your um, your income will increase tenfold when you move down to Duke and start this new chapter. Do you think that that's typically the trajectory once you're done with your postdoc, you you know see this huge increase in salary? Yeah. So as as Whitney sort of alluded to, it is a it is an investment, a financial investment, and that almost stopped me from you know going and doing my PhD as well and then coming here to train. But the training you get, you know, hopefully sets you up for the next stage. So once training is done, then you can go off and sort of, my, as my mum says, now you've got a, you've got a big girl job now. Yeah. <laughs> Which is like, thanks mum, I've just been <laughs> at university, at school for the last, around. Yep, the last 30 years of my life. <laughs> and now I can finally, you know, go and buy a house and do all the normal adult things. Durham is a really good analog in North Carolina where Duke is to Worcester, I think. Um, it's a smaller city there. It's a college town. We have a lot of colleges and academia here in Worcester. So I think that it'll be a really good fit in that sense, too. And it is even there so much more affordable than in Charlotte. And so I think that it's it's a nice, it's like the little, it's a little sister city, which I feel like we kind of are to Boston. So it's a good fit. Worcester will always have a place in my house. Come back. <laughs> and Whitney, have you experienced an opportunity? Uh, definitely. I would definitely say so. So in, in my field, we are still slightly different than in human medicine, whereas we don't have to do internships and residency after our four years of professional school, and I chose not to, largely because I'd been in college for 10 years, and I, at some point, like my mom also says, I needed a big girl job. I needed to have an income and start paying off a ridiculous amount of loans. Um, and so I work as a general practitioner, but I am fortunate to work with a group of people where I am constantly training and building new skills. And there are definitely opportunities for me to progress as I become more experienced. And I could, there's different ways to go about it. And I could become a medical director of a practice and have more of a leadership role. I could take on more surgical 
um, responsibilities than I do now. So it's kind of, it's easy to tailor my job into what I want it to be. And that can change as I am in it longer. And I think the other pluses as well, the things we don't hear about going into, you know, science is there are not many other jobs in the world where you can really use it to go and see the world. So, you know, conferences, I've been to Japan and Europe and can, you know, you get sent all over the world to meet random other people as your job. You get to go and ask questions everywhere in the world. It's kind of... um, yeah, I didn't know that aspect going in, but it's a real it's a real sell. It's a real advantage, I think. Yeah, and I hadn't it was something I always knew like every state in the US requires veterinarians to perform and complete a certain number of continuing education tasks and hours a year, and most of that is going to conferences, but it's it's something that you know in the back of your mind, but I didn't realize either until I was out and had a job. But that's part of my job is they send me places and I meet other people in my field who are doing really cool cutting-edge things. Like this is where I learn about what's happening on the research field and what's about to hit the market into medicine. And it's just cool that we're in a field that supports that. It's not just a requirement, but they do everything they can to make it easy for you to progress, always. We get, we get paid to be adventurers, basically. Yeah. That's pretty sweet. Are there any programs or is there any infrastructure in place? We talk about women. We discuss this like in those professional fields and in science, which appears sometimes to be a male-dominated field. Are there is there any formal program in place for like women supporting women through those careers, or is it a real like a person-to-person type of thing? Have you found mentors? Um, for vets, it's kind of both. Um, so my field has taken a weird turn in a very recent amount of times. So in the past three or four, maybe less decades, it's become a woman-dominated domi- field. Um, vet school classes are mostly women at this point. Um, but there are organizations that help support people among that because while that's true now, it's kind of a recent change. So you have like 80 out of 100 graduating vet students are women, but we're interviewing to work in practices owned by older men. And that's a different dynamic. And there are a lot of groups out to help support that and provide mentorship. And I'm fortunate enough to know several very accomplished female veterinarians and doctors and researchers who have helped me kind of navigate that and learn how to present myself and not be nervous and be confident in my skills and my abilities. That is, yeah, this is a... um it's a great question. It's something that I have great hope for, for the future. Um, in, I think it's field, field to field dependent. Um, but I know so many badass lady scientists, yes. and that gives me such great hope. But then, I guess historically, looking back, we have, you know, in your PhD program, 50% women. And then we progress through to postdoc, and we lose another 10 or 20%. Assistant professor, we've just lost another 10%. You get to full professor, and there aren't that many. So there's this, you know, we call it the leaky pipeline. There are many examples of, you know, maybe why there aren't so many women in high-level positions in science. And that is something, you know, I, I would love to help be a part of the next wave of badass lady scientists. I'm inspired by so many, and there are programs now that are you know, boosting us for fellowships and, you know, advocacy, finding a great mentor. You know, Chris has been fabulous at nominating me for awards and sending me all over the world and just, you know, even simple things in meetings, backing me up. If I say something in a meeting that, you know, then someone else goes and repeats later and, you know, they sort of get credit for it, 
I'm in a lab where I've had some great male colleagues that will, you know, sort of chime in and say, hang on, didn't Claire just say that 10 minutes ago? <laughs> oh, yeah, as Claire already mentioned. So I think finding those advocates and, and you know, advocating for each other, there is, there's a long way to go, but I have hope. And I like that you mentioned um, Chris as, your, as a mentor who lifts you up because it is partly men who need to, to you know, grab on and take that role. It can't just be women reaching out to other women. It has to be men who have these roles that say you're, you know, you're a woman who's worthy of being lifted yes. and, and really being like true allies in that way. Exactly. Yeah. I like the, the image of a leaky pipeline. Well, I don't like it, but I have not thought of it that way. Yeah. I just completed my principal licensure, and I can't even tell you how many women in my field have said to me, oh, honey, you don't want to do that until after you have kids. Have kids first. And then, and I really feel like it has put me at a professional disadvantage that I express the fact that I want to have a family. And so I wonder if that's a huge piece of your leaky pipeline is these women who want to start families or have babies and like that obviously puts you on delay. And it's like something I'm still grappling with that frustrates me to no end. I think, I think a lot of women, and I don't know if it's just something that we innately think or if it's something we think because of what society tells us. I don't know where it comes from, but I think a lot of women do assume that we have to take this huge delay if we have children. And some people do and some people choose to, but I also know women who, I mean, you take your maternity leave, you're off, you obviously miss some amount of work, but I know a lot of badass women in science who have families and children and they're active in their children's lives and they're active partners to their spouses and they are amazing clinicians so i think there's this big mental block where a lot of women assume they can't do all that and you can i know happy people who do it and they do all of it to an amazing level like it's possible and i think that's part of being a woman in science but also being a woman in society is you just have to realize you can do it and it doesn't matter if anyone else thinks you can or if they assume you can or can't you can do it and that's what I want to tell other women in the yeah. teacher's room when they say they're applying for their principal's license I want to be like yes you can do it of Absolutely. course you can I don't want to be one of those ladies 10 years from now who's like oh you'll probably want to have kids slow down you know I don't think that that's helpful to anybody um, so I like that. Let's keep that narrative alive. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Now, I know Molly has a fascination with the Irwin family. I'll let her get into it, I but really, we thought you might be a, a good really resource. I really Bindi Irwin. I just think that she's a light in the world. It's basically it. Like, I just think that she, she brings positivity um, and, like, joy to people through her wildlife warrior <laughs> lifestyle. Um, and so you, Whitney, work with animals. Claire, you are from Australia, and you are a woman in science. Do, were you guys impacted at all by, like, Steve Irwin and his legacy growing up? Um, I think to a degree I was, and I, I'm, I don't know much about Bindi, and I think it's because I was a little bit older when mm. everything happened. Um, but I think he was one of the first people to really make it cool to go out in the world and not just be around animals and have them on camera, but to know about what they eat and where they live and what their science is. Like he made it cool to be an animal nerd, yeah. which was super appreciated for like me when I'm like eight, nine and 10. And I'm, I had a bunch of reptiles in my bedroom and like I was always catching snakes and worms out in the yard. And that was cool if you were into Steve Irwin and a lot of people were. Like I think he made it okay to be animal nerdy. Yeah. 
As an Aussie, I find this hilarious. <laughs> we love him. And, if, and like American people of a certain age, like I would guess between like 25 and 35 right now, it was like that was like the time where he like he had his TV show on the Animal Planet, and it was like a really big, it was a huge like cultural thing here. Like that's what put Animal Planet on the map, I think. Yeah. Right? My science teacher, Mrs. Cummings, in seventh grade, would have us watch it every week <laughs> yeah. and write up a summary, yeah. as, like as a weekly assignment. This this it is amazing. Is. It's a huge deal. Like we people, it was like a tragedy. So why like, is it amazing? No, yeah, I is it know not more. popular over there? <laughs> I wouldn't, I, I can't speak for all Australians. Yeah. Um, I mean, we're certainly aware of him. He, there were many that came before him. So before him, there was Les Hiddens, who was the bush tucker man, who would go out in the forest and, and teach you all how to survive on just... Like what Bear Grylls does now, kind of. Exactly. He was kind of like a cross between uh, Steve Irwin and Bear Grylls. He was the original. And then Steve Irwin comes along and he's done so much for environmental awareness. You know, they bought up so much land and put aside for conservation. They've done some awesome things. Uh, As an Aussie, I I just find it hilarious, this over the top, you know, and, and maybe that's why you guys love it but back home that's just what you do there is a giant spider in your bedroom you get taught from a very young age you just go and pick it up and take it outside I think that it is a it's a cultural thing and I think that was the fascination here especially and we actually talked about this a little bit earlier like what you experience as a kid and took in music and tv and all that stuff you really you know impacts you nostalgically as an adult and what you love and I think that we as kids were like this is how they do do stuff in Australia. Like, it kind of is, but that's why it's so funny because the cell. He's such a good yeah. at the hype man oh, yeah. and the pitch, and <laughs> and maybe I'm like that for science. I don't know. Just you know, overly enthusiastic and and a bit over the top. But yeah. it, I I get it. I appreciate it. I find it hilarious. Yeah, <laughs> it is. I'm. I love that. That makes me happy. Um, but it does that make that makes sense to me. Just the idea, like our relationship. I think to nature and conservancy and animals in the in the states is different than it is in other countries and i think particularly australia which so growing up you know on the front lawn every morning the the kangaroos would be out the front and you know it'd be annoying and you'd you know the amount of times as a kid you you nearly stepped on a tiger snake you know and those things can kill you in like 20 minutes and you just you just back away slowly you don't antagonize it. it it's all good the wombats, you know, you come out to your vegetable garden and and there'd be this little pile of square poo. <laughs> square. And Google it. Everyone thinks I'm, like, messing with them. Real Google <laughs> what animal has square poo and a wombat will come up. It's incredible. Like, you just have this, you know, and every night I'd have to go up. My chore as a child would be to... Um, shut in the ducks. My mum had these little pile of, you know, ducks. Oh my gosh. They look like little brownie bites. Yeah, they <laughs> are. Yeah. But, but so I'd have to lock in the ducks so that the Tasmanian devils didn't come and wow. eat them. So as a young child, you learn very early on the concept of responsibility because when you forget to lock in the ducks and you come up, you know, little five-year-old Claire, oh, let the ducks out. Oh, whoops. And all that's left is their little, you know, webbed feet and their bills because the pack of, yeah, Tassie devils have been through. So you just, you learn to engage with your environment, with with the nature and sort of learn to have a love of questions and curiosity, I think, from just growing up in that. 
it's it, I get the sense, and I think I've heard this before, that like kangaroos in Australia are sort of like raccoons here. Yes. Like they just show up in your lawn, right? And they're yeah. in the like wherever they're just around. Yeah, I love that. And Whitney, what are some of the most exotic animals mm. that you've dealt with in your line of work? Oh, I think. I think probably the most exotic was a baby giraffe. Um, <laughs> I love giraffes. They're all right. Um, <laughs> they're, they're innately more difficult to work with because yeah. if they don't if they don't want to do it, they're just not. Giraffe. They're just not anything realistically oh. bigger than sixty pounds. If it doesn't want to so do funny. it, it's not going to. Is working um, with a giraffe um, in like the medical field functionally really similar to like a horse? Um. No. Uh, <laughs> oh, because, like, right, because their bodies are similar, but then there's... Yeah, like, their their bodies are kind of similar, but their mentality is a little different. Wow. And for us, it was, like, so we had... It was, like, a young giraffe, and so you have to, like, time it to make sure he gets out of there before he, like, outgrows your space. Um, like, kazoos are set up for this, but veterinary hospitals aren't. And then I think on... So that was, like, a, a one-time thing. And now I think the most exotic things that I see is, like, little reptiles and pocket pets. Like, I'll see hedgehogs and snakes and geckos and... That's about as. What were the circumstances that they brought you a baby giraffe? <laughs> um, it was it was when I was in vet school. Um, so they, as the as the local specialty hospital, they're kind of the only people equipped for that. Um, and it was he was fine. He got better. He went home. Um, <laughs> Do you ever encounter people that buy these exotic animals as like little babies and then they grow into big unsustainable pets? That's a super common problem, and it's not even, it's more that they buy these cute, adorable things at, at pet stores or at auctions or things like that, and they don't, they just don't know how to take care of them. So it's not even just that, like, they grow big and strong and they don't know how to manage it. It's more that just they start to not thrive and they don't know what to do. And then you have to have this conversation where it's like, well, essentially, you need to ship it to Australia or the Amazon or wherever it was supposed to be alive. And otherwise, you need to recreate a tiny version of that in your house, which is a lot more time and effort than most people are willing to put in. Like, you can buy baby chameleons at Petco down the street from my house. And I've owned pets my whole life I've owned several reptiles and those are still well beyond what I consider my abilities and I know their medical needs and I know their physical needs but you can pick one up for a hundred bucks and so I a lot of the little exotic species I see in practice it's not even down to they need me to do medical things or surgery they just need to take better care of them and it's usually just a really long educational conversation but that's a super common thing where people I mean one of the biggest things we have now are these these mini pigs or like pot belly pigs a mini pig is 200 pounds and people think that's huge but when you consider that most pigs like a full-grown pig can be 800 to a thousand pounds 200 pounds is mini but it's not like boston apartment mini and people assume they are because whoever they bought them from on craigslist said they top out at 40 pounds and they don't and they're like oh yeah george clooney had one of these it's fine you're fine yeah Yeah. right but it's just it's one of those things where people see like cute adorable baby things and then they just get overwhelmed no kangaroos you haven't come across not yet no um no I've had, um, where I, I grew up in Ohio, I worked in a vet clinic and we had wolves. Um, wolves are a big deal there. Um, because until I moved out here, you could, you could buy like lions and tigers and things in Ohio. And really? Yeah. Um, and it's, it's illegal now. There was a big incident soon after I moved here where a bunch of them were freed. And there are, are certain states, right? Where you can still own some animals like that. Yeah. Like you can own big cats in some states and nobody's really equipped to do that like there's a huge argument in my field and in animals in general are like are most zoos even equipped to adequately care and provide like the mental enrichment needed for these species so can like somebody do it in their backyard really no 
Yeah, I'm just picturing Mike Tyson in The Hangover oh, with like the, the tiger. The tiger. <laughs> yeah. Right. So it's like, yeah. Because it's really like building an ecosystem. Right. Like, yeah. Yeah. And there's, I mean, and we have this conversation about like it was a big thing with SeaWorld when Blackfish came out and yeah. it's a big thing in zoos with big cats and bears and wolves. And it's like when you have these animals who are in the wild, their territory covers hundreds of square miles. How do you realistically adequately provide for that in captivity and still have them provide a service like let's be honest like zoos are there to expose us to wildlife so if you have a 10 square mile bear enclosure no one's going to see the bear and no one's going to associate with that bear so it's this is a huge balance in a bigger scheme of things much less in the pet world so it's unfortunately yeah a lot of people pick up these cute things that they really thought they wanted and then it's just it's really hard to care for these creatures are there any of those kinds of creatures you mentioned some reptiles and hedgehogs that like like i feel like hedgehogs have become slightly more mainstream and they can they make good pets yeah right? like yeah, the ones do. that are a little out there but they're like not they're really not that hard yeah. and it's just one of those things where it's it's not even like it's a lot more effort people just need to direct the effort in a different direction so there right. there are really cute unique exotic things you can have that aren't that hard to care for Claire, working in a lab, I remember us talking about zebrafish in particular, but you do you end up doing testing on animals? We do, yeah. So the question is, how do we go from applying something in a dish to people? And we can't go and you know do these big cohort studies, so we need really good models, the in-between step. And it could be you know, sea elegans, worms, it could be zebrafish, um, mice. But the idea is we want to be... You know, it's, it's all humane, it's all sustainable, but we want our models to be genetically diverse, so repre- as best representative as we can. How close is our DNA to something like a zebrafish? Um, much more close than, closely related than you'd think, yeah. So we've just got to choose the right models for the right questions. So, you know, zebrafish, you can image them, you can see through the, you know, the embryos are clear, so you can, you can look at their... Um, you know, the cells, where they go. So you've just got to ask the right questions. Do you, this might, I'm trying to like remember things from science. And so for certain animals, you might choose based off of like a certain strand of DNA or something that they would have a similarity to humans. Is that what it would be? Yeah, or um, different, like different strains of mice that mimic what we see in people. So people that can lock away TB in their lungs, you know, some of these strains of mice do a really good job at at locking them down and having that immune response. So that's a perfect model in which to understand uh, the host-pathogen relationship. In the half decade that you've spent researching TB in particular in Worcester, what has been a big aha moment for you? Think about that. Even uh, even a step before that for, for malaria from my PhD, you know, we thought we'd found this compound um, that could be a new anti-malarial drug. Uh, so that was kind of an aha but then realizing we were only looking at the host side. And so that's why I came to Worcester. That was the aha moment of, we got to understand the pathogen as well. So there are all these different strains of TB and you know, they're prevalent in different parts of the world. So the aha here in, at UMass, you know, Chris Sassetti pioneered the bacterial technology. So now we can combine his sort of bacterial approaches with my hosty genetics approaches to understand every every host and bacterial sort of pairing so you know some hosts when you give them certain strains will be worse than other hosts sort of this this mix match of host and pathogen 
how do you protect yourself <laughs> dealing with infectious yeah. disease? And then also Whitney dealing with exotic animals or, or not even exotic animals, domestic animals that do not want to be at a vet's office. How do you both <laughs> take precautions to look out for your well-being? Yeah. So TB, where we are super, we have super stringent, super strict protocol. I should have brought a a, a kit to, for you ladies to dress up in yeah so we wear you know these jumpsuits and and um, you know protective gloves bouffants the scrub um the booty the booty scrubs um and the big thing is the the papa or respirator so we have this you know and it's 99.9 percent um, efficacy of nothing can get in you won't breathe anything in so I spend most of my day in a BL3 so in a biosafety sort of containment facility breathing my own sweat basically <laughs> you know you're dressed up it's like a moon suit um, I, I can send you guys some pictures and I should I should send you some of the respirators to try on because imagine wearing a respirator for you know, eight hours at a time. How long? Whoa. Yeah, and every time you need a bathroom break, you got to plan this stuff carefully. <laughs> um, so for mine, it's, it's honestly, um, dogs and cats are by far the scariest creatures I work with and the ones I worry most about hurting me, especially cats. Um, a cat who doesn't like you is it's a weaponized little creature. Um, they're quick and they, they're not super attached to their skins. So they can kind of take on different shapes and they're strong. Um, so I... I and most veterinarians and many of our support staff are vaccinated for rabies. So that's our, our big concern because it's an incurable, terrible disease. Um, but other than that, it's a lot of having really well-trained support staff. And I have a great team of technicians and assistants who do a fantastic job of keeping me from getting hurt. And other than that, there's we try really hard um, where I work, and it's becoming a bigger thing, too, to try to not just keep ourselves safe but do it in a way that's less stressful for our patients. So we're, I'm a big fan of sedation when it's appropriate, not just because it protects me, but it's also less traumatic for a dog than being like held down by three people. We can just give you something a little bit of time before your procedure, and it's much safer for everyone else. So it's but definitely, definitely big thanks to my support staff because they've saved me more than a couple of times. <laughs> I think you, you know, we think it's like a dog, like, or this perception I think is changed too probably, but we're like, oh, it's a dog. Like it doesn't need the same, like, you know, drugs that we might need when we're getting a surgical procedure, even like a minor one. But like, you think how nervous you would be for something like that. Like dogs need nervous too. I have no idea what's going on. Why is this happening? It's kind of, it's everything in my field lags a bit behind human medicine but like it took a while for people to realize like hey the stuff we do to animals hurts a bit we should provide some pain relief and anesthesia while we do things and now we're finally getting the point to where like we can also prevent like the mental stress that they go through because it's like you said like they don't know who I am they don't know why I'm doing these things to them or why they're hurting or that it's better for them in the long run if I do this procedure so it's just the more humane thing to do and it is safer for all of us to just make them feel less terrified um, but it, it's cool to see the field going in that direction because now there's actually a whole fear-free movement where we're redesigning hospitals and we're redesigning restraint techniques as, and our tools, everything about the hospitals are starting to be designed about, to reduce the stress of our patients. My only other question is we talk a lot about pop culture on this show, yes. and I wanted to know if there are depictions of your profession um, in pop culture that either really irk you because they are so inaccurate, like the movie Bad Teacher with Cameron Diaz. Oh, yeah. I just, like, cringed through the whole thing and yep. said, that could never happen, you know? 
Um, or a, a piece of pop culture that did you justice, where you're like, this was inspiring, and this is what I feel and experience as a woman working in the science field. I veterinarians always get a really cool nod in any zombie movie um so i'm, I'm cool with that because like it's, it's almost always like if, if there's a zombie apocalypse but there's a veterinarian around we save the day for everyone Somehow, yeah. right. right good to know yeah so we're highly valuable should zombies happen let's come across as cool i think scientists yeah. we don't the perception you say the word scientist or you ask you know like a kid what what they think a scientist would look like and it's it's not going to be uh, you know it's not going to be me I yeah. think it's not going to be a you know six foot tall Australian Aussie woman it, yeah oh, thank you <laughs> it's it's going to be some nerdy guy in a lab coat with you know pipetting reagents and most movies get it wrong you know these people don't even pipet properly we all like mock you know we mock a lot of these movies so I think changing the face that you know there are badass lady scientists out there and we don't all wear lab coats you're like normal people exactly (laughs) yeah i think you're right like i think there's this big like public perception that scientists are like separated from normal people and they're not above or below they're just like this weird separate way of people that think entirely differently and don't have outside lives and you do like you you're Full people with full outside lives. It's the mad scientist trope. Yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> of course. Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. Oh. Young yeah. Frankenstein in particular. He's the <laughs> maddest of them all. Um, I Speaking of comedy, you mentioned you're from Tasmania, which is the homeland of Hannah Gadsby. It is. I love. Yeah, so I just was so excited when you said that because she speaks a lot about... It, like very similarly to the way you described how it's such a small place and and she's she's fascinating you know I couldn't actually watch all of Nanette I I just couldn't get through it yeah. it was that was that was tough it, it's a lot Mass Foodies curates exclusive events and publishes thought-provoking content for the food-centric person. When asking yourself where to eat tonight, turn to MassFoodies.com to see what's happening in the Massachusetts food scene. That's MassFoodies.com. We, we think of like a Tasmanian devil or something like that, but it is, it seems like, like it is part of Australia, but it's, it seems like a very special place outside of just being a, a not, like part well, of Australia. Well, you compare it to Maine yeah. and people always, you know, like put Maine world. in its own category. Yeah. Yeah. It's across. So my boss, but Chris actually went to a conference. He was invited to Tasmania. So my boss shows up in Hobart, Tasmania, and says to me, why on earth did you leave? You know, this is, <laughs> this is like paradise. It's the most beautiful place on earth. Uh, and of course, because my boss was there, you know, my mom called him up and said, <laughs> you know, where, where are you? And, you know, her and the rest of my family all, you know, took him to a pub and, and grilled him on, you know, what's Claire doing in America? Why, why, why hasn't she come home yet? Is she okay? I love that. Yeah. So it's this very community-orientated, much like Worcester. Before we sign off, do you want to give a shout-out to any famous o- Ohio and Yeah, Ohio. Is that, what are you, Ohio? Ohioans. Ohioans. LeBron James. I'm not a LeBron fan. <laughs> no. no. Okay. I didn't forgive him from the first time he Whoa. left Cleveland. Um, I know. I'm one of the few. Um... There aren't, like, a ton of them. Like, we've got some presidents and a few astronauts. There's, like, a huge joke about how, like, Ohioans love to leave Ohio so much they go to space. (laughs) Which ones? John Glenn. Oh, like, Um, the best 
one. Like, really famous. John Glenn is the greatest like, astronaut. That's so funny. When he um, was a congressman, was he back in Ohio? Do you know? I honestly don't know. I'm so hoping I'm right with John Glenn, actually. I did, like, I know it's I believe like you. three or four of them. Um, but I believe you. <laughs> Molly, you had an astronaut question. Yeah, Scott. I figured it was like we had some good other good talks. Scott Kelly did the year. He did his year. In, or Chris Kelly. Wait. Oh, God. It was Scott. There's these twin brothers who um, both of them are astronauts. And one of them spent a year in space. And he came home. And it was really interesting because I was thinking, oh, like genomes. Because they, they had him do that in part to study whether his DNA would alter at all. And what would happen. Yeah, and, and if he was at any higher risk for... Uh, diseases when he got home and I just thought that that was so fascinating I was like I was really into that I like I'm, was it conclusive um, no no and the reason and they, very controversial yes published. and the reason that they and the reason they said too they said you know we only have these two like we're doing this as a preliminary like we just want to see because we have this situation where we have two like identical twins who have attained astronauthood yeah. so right and it is right and i just i found the whole thing really fascinating i like space in general but um <laughs> but i love that everyone the people are talking about it you know yeah. that's no matter how this you know the science may you know we need bigger yeah. bigger population study bigger size you know co- of cohort but the the fact that we're all talking yeah. about it like that's perfect. That's, right. that's what we need to it bring. Some level of genomic research, yeah. But I just, um, and it's funny too because I read a bunch of articles about it. I read a lot about his own personal experience. Um, and you know, we right people are like, well, this happened and this happened. But if you actually read the, even just like articles and like Time and stuff, will say it'll have quotes from scientists saying like, we understand that this isn't. But people don't realize that the layperson doesn't necessarily think like say like doesn't understand the sample size and variables and all that kind of stuff but I did find it headlines yeah it was a cool right it was a cool thing like you said like people are talking about it and so how do we bring in the next layer of evidence-based science we read these big headlines but we've got to ask ourselves the questions as well the really critical thinking we don't have to be scientists to do it. We can still ask the tough questions. I love that. Well, that's what we're teaching kids yes. right now. I do every assignment on six levels, and the highest level of thinking is creativity, the open-ended questions, and that's what we're working towards. So it's a new philosophy, but we're bringing up a new generation of brilliant lady scientists yes. to follow in your path. This gives me so much hope. <laughs> Well, thank you so much both for joining us today. I know you were busy and working and you're getting ready to make your transition. So it means a lot. That was great. Mm -hmm. I I love science. I'm so excited. (laughs) Well, I have been Sarah. I've been Molly. And this was Pop It. Pop It. The AC Lounge at the AC Hotel in downtown Worcester is the newest place to be. During May, the trendy AC Lounge is featuring fun and exciting ways to officially usher in spring, showcasing custom signature drinks to celebrate college graduations, build your own bruschetta bar, yum, and a fun pop-up artist event and a meet-the-chef culinary evening on National Hamburger Day. Check out the AC Hotels by Marriott Worcester Facebook or visit them on 125 Front Street behind City Hall. Mass Foodies curates exclusive events and publishes thought-provoking content for the food-centric person. When asking yourself where to eat tonight, turn to MassFoodies.com to see what's happening in the Massachusetts food scene. That's MassFoodies.com.